All right. Kids can now be dismissed. <laughs> Did he say, let's get out of here? Wow. That is intense. Okay, let me pull up my notes here, folks. All right, so tonight we begin a brand new series through the book of First John called Lightwalkers. Uh, just out of curiosity, um, have any of you begun to start looking at reading through the book of First John? Anyone? All right, that is okay. We're going to be spending a lot of time uh, in the book of First John. Um, Earlier this week, I uploaded a video onto our Facebook page uh, by the Bible Project uh, that kind of gives an overview of the book of First John. Um, did anyone get a chance to look at that video uh, this week? Cool. Yeah, so the Bible Project is a great resource. Um, if you've got some time to go and browse on their uh, uh, YouTube page, um, they do a great job of summarizing not only biblical books, but also biblical themes and word studies. Um, a really great resource for uh, understanding Scripture. So let me begin by briefly talking about why I wanted to do a series through the book of First John. Um, there's a few reasons. In a general sense, one of the reasons why I want to do this is because it's a goal of mine to choose one book of the Bible every single year for us to do kind of a deep dive uh, into. Um, topical series are important, and, and they're still going to continue uh, here, and throughout the year I'll still be uh, doing some topical things. They're good and useful. Um, but I want us to be able to really go deep into a long chunk of the text. And I want to train us as a church how uh, we do that. I want us to be people of the word. I want us to be people that know the word and read the word and dig deep into the word. I don't want us to ever neglect a deep study of scripture because this should be the basis for our lives. Um, I was telling our uh, BCM group uh, at Notre Dame on Thursday that a while back, and some of you guys know this, a while back um, when I was living in Virginia, I used to co-host a radio show called The Great Bible Debate. And uh, the guy that I would debate every single week was a deist, and he saw the Bible as a terrible work of fiction. And the thing that he would keep repeating over and over and over to me and on the air on our show is that he would say, I know the Bible better than most Christians do. That blows my mind. It blows my mind that they would base their entire eternity on something that they don't even read. Because the vast majority of Christians have never read their way through the Bible. And I want to make that a goal for us, that we are continually, consistently working our way through the word, that we are married to the word. Because I don't want anyone to ever be able to hold over us, I know the Bible better than you do, so I'm going to destroy you with it. More than likely, you probably won't be hosting a radio show anytime soon, but the fact is we live in a world that does not have a friendly view of the Bible, and so we need to know the Word. So part of the reason why we're doing a series through this is so that we can learn how to really study a book of the Bible. 
How do we examine a text from various angles? How do we look at it backwards and forwards? How do we determine things like authorial intent and cultural context? I I want us to make a habit, and I want to encourage you in your personal time, to make a habit of really studying the Word. Not just reading the Word to check off a, a, a list. You know, here are the Christian things I need to do. Check. I read the Bible today. I want us to learn how to make a habit of really diving deep. So over the next couple of months, we'll be doing that with the book of 1 John. Um, Additionally, there are some things specifically about the book of 1 John that led me to want to go through this series because I think they're essential for where we are, not only as a church, but also in culture at this time. When this epistle was written, there were a number of false teachers that had begun to infiltrate the church. And they were teaching things that were twisting the truth in very subtle but very dangerous ways. And so John writes this letter and his other letters so that the people of God won't be deceived. So that they won't be led astray. And one of the things that this letter helps us to understand is that it is essential that we must continually be immersing ourselves in the truth. Because there are a lot of people these days in churches, in leadership positions, that are teaching things that simply are not true. And if we don't know what the truth is, if we don't know the word well enough, it will be easy for us to be led astray. It'll be easy for us to be taken sideways. First John also places a tremendous emphasis on placing our faith in Jesus, following his commands, and loving one another. Faith in Christ, following his commands, loving one another. And I hope that that's something that defines us, not only as individuals, but also as a church. That we believe in the truth of God, we follow the commands of God, and we love the children of God. And that's one of the things that 1 John uh, lays out for us. And finally, one of the things that 1 John does is it lays out in practical terms what it looks like to be walking in the light, which is the theme of this series, Light Walkers, Walking in the Light. He lays that out in practical terms. What does it look like? It's so easy to fall off the straight and narrow path. And, and it's so easy to begin to walk in darkness without even really realizing that we are. So, 1 John tells us how we can focus on what is actually true. And it provides us kind of with a spiritual check engine light. Um, All of us have a check engine light in our vehicles that every so often will go off. I don't know what you typically do when your check engine light goes on. Um, What I do usually is when it turns on, I ignore it. I pretend that it isn't there. Now... That is not the right thing to do because my car is telling me something is wrong. Something is not as it should be and needs to be fixed. To me, it's just flashing a dollar sign at me that I know something is going to be expensive. And so if I just pretend that it's not there, maybe it'll just go away. And then sometimes it turns off and I'm like, yes, Jesus fixed it. And then I continue to do it and eventually I'm going to end up on the side of the road. But... 
All that to say, one of the things that First John does is it helps us to kind of hone that spiritual check engine light so that when we begin to stray, that light goes off and we're aware and we know that something is wrong. And I want us to be a people that are walking in the light rather than in darkness. So let's dive right in and read First John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, he writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In uh, 1919, uh, which by my math is 99 years ago, or 101 years ago, (laughs) my math was wrong, but then I got it right, okay, so don't judge me. 101 years ago, 1919, in the city of Los Angeles, Anna Mae Penica was born blind. The cause for this was that in both of her eyes, she had a very rare congenital cataract. And so she had only a very slight perception of light, but could not actually see uh, anything. So a doctor at the time told her parents there was really nothing that could be done, and so Anna went about making the most of her life, and uh, by all accounts lived a very good life, um, despite not having sight. She went to church, she worshipped God, she tried to serve others as best as she possibly could. Um, At the age of 47, she met her husband in a Braille class, and her husband uh, could see. He was uh, doing a ministry to the deaf, and so he was learning Braille. He could see, she could not. They ended up getting married. And so for, uh, they say, about 15 years, he was seeing for both of them. He uh, was their eyes. But then, 15 years into their marriage, he also lost his sight uh, because of a rare degenerative eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa. So now, both Anna and her husband are completely blind. At this point, they think that there's nothing they can possibly do about it. But then in October of 1983, a doctor named Thomas Pettit at the Eye Institute of the University of California heard uh, about Anna's condition, her, her situation. And so he asked Anna if he could do an examination on her eyes. And she agreed. 
After examining these congenital cataracts in both of her eyes, he told her, I can take these out with surgery. And she agreed to a risky surgical procedure. So she first had surgery on her left eye and then surgery on her right eye. And amazingly, the surgery worked. The bandages were removed. Anna opened her eyes. And at the age of 62, she could see for the very first time. I mean, try to imagine that kind of a moment, right? For 62 years, you've been walking in darkness. For 62 years, you've had no sight whatsoever. And then one day, bandages are removed, and you can see. I I can't even imagine what that would be like. Not only could she see, the doctor corrected her vision to nearly 20-20 vision. She still had to wear glasses, but her vision's probably about as good as mine. It's amazing. In her profile in the Los Angeles Times that year, she talked about how she could hardly go to sleep at night because she wanted to keep looking at stuff. And then when she finally did go to sleep, she couldn't wait to wake up in the morning so that she could get up and wash her face, put on her glasses, and go outside and watch the sunrise. Everything to her was incredible. At this point, she also began to voraciously read books because now she could actually read with her eyes instead of reading with her hands. She could see her husband. She could see her family. She could see her friends. And so she talked about how everything was so much bigger and brighter than what she could have ever imagined. Um, Interestingly, she talked about color and how when she was blind, she could imagine what color would be Uh, For example, she said, I could imagine what green was like because I've heard green described. But then I actually saw green and I was amazed by how many different shades there could possibly be uh, in the color green. So she's like a child seeing for the very first time. Everything to her, she said, is so incredible. And at that point, she began to see for her husband uh, on his behalf. It is an incredible story. Uh, You might even describe it as a miraculous story. But there is one sort of tragic element uh, to this story. Again, when Anna was a child, she was told by the doctors that there was nothing that she could do. And so she went about her life believing that nothing could be done for her. She spent her entire life believing, I am going to be blind and I accept that. At age 62, she finally receives sight. But when she did, her doctor, Dr. Pettit, asked her why she didn't seek this out sooner. She said, what do you mean? And he said, because the technology that I'm using to do your surgery has been available for over 40 years. So for over 40 years... She could have gone into a facility, gotten this surgery, and gotten her sight. She spent 62 years living in darkness before she began to live in the light. And that miracle had been available to her her entire adult life. All she needed was someone to make her aware of it. My friends, we are surrounded by people who are walking in darkness. Trying to make the most of their lives, 
having no idea that there is a miracle of sight and light that is available to them. And what they need are people who will show that to them. What they need is to see in us what it looks like to walk in the light. They need to hear the truth from us verbally. They need to witness it. They need to hear it. They need to see it. And we need to pray for opportunities to continually share that so that they too might share in our experience. Additionally, there are also ways that we as believers continue to walk in darkness. There are sinful patterns and sinful habits and sinful desires that still lurk, holding us back, making us struggle. And we need to learn how to live in victory over those things. We need to be continually bringing those things into the light, exposing them to the light of Christ. What is hidden cannot stay hidden. We need the light of Christ to shine in every place in our hearts. And that is what I hope we see in the book of 1 John. I hope as what we uh, I hope as we study this book, what we discover is how to be light walkers. So, let's dive in. Um, Again, one of the reasons why I want us to do a study like this together is to help all of us learn exactly how we might do this. How does a person do a deep exegetical study? So that every one of us can go home and do deep exegetical study on our own. So that you don't have to necessarily be here, although I want you to continue to be here, but I want to equip you to feed yourself with the word. And so part of doing that is asking good questions about the text. Questions like, who is the author? Who is the intended audience? Why is this author writing these things to these people at this particular time and place in history? How would the original audience that received this letter have understood it? And then what does that mean for us thousands of years later? So let's start with the author. Who is the author of 1 John? Anyone? I expected someone. John, thank you. (laughs) Boy, this was a really easy one. Uh, Typically when there's a name there, you just shout the name out. (laughs) Not always, yes. Uh, Hebrews isn't someone's name. (laughs) neither is Psalms or Proverbs. But here we have John, who is the author. John is referred to, as we'll see in various places in Scripture, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, He was one of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, John is the author of the Gospel of John, of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation. So what that means is this particular person has written five books of the New Testament, more than any of the other apostles. The only other person to write more of the New Testament would be the Apostle Paul. And John, to me, when you, when you begin to do a character study on this guy, John is one of my favorite people. He's one of the most interesting characters in all the, uh, all the New Testament. If, if I could spend a day 
just hanging out with one of the 12 disciples, John might be that dude. Um, So let's start by giving a little bit of a profile of who this guy is. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes around and he begins to call the 12 disciples. He goes and calls Peter and and some fishermen. There's Matthew, the tax collector, or Levi, the tax collector, various guys. And so among these 12 disciples that he calls are two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen. And these were normal blue-collar dudes. And here's what's interesting. These guys were total roughnecks. I mean, they were roughnecks, but they were also among Jesus' closest friends. Um, It's an interesting dichotomy. So first, why, why do I refer to these guys as roughnecks? Well, when Jesus first calls James and John to be his disciples, he gives them a very interesting nickname. He, nicks, he nicknames James and John the Sons of Thunder. Okay, that is an awesome nickname. That, that is an incredible moniker, the Sons of Thunder. That's like the perfect name for a wrestling tag team duo, right? Now entering the ring at a combined weight of 562 pounds, the Sons of Thunder. And then the rock music starts playing and these guys come in with a chair and a two by four. The Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder is not a name that you give to a couple of pansies, right? Um, It kind of reminds me of uh, the the Mighty Ducks series and you had Dean Portman and uh, Fulton Reed and their nickname was the Bash Brothers. They're the enforcers. They're the, they're the guys that are always getting into fights. The ones that have their, their grit about them. And particularly with these guys, they also have a fair share of aggression. Um, there's a passage in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus goes into a Samaritan village. And he tries to preach there and he's rejected. And so uh, the Samaritans uh, essentially kick them out of the village. So James and John in Luke 9.54 actually ask Jesus the following question. Luke 9.54, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And the following verse tells us that Jesus turns around and rebukes them. Now it doesn't say exactly what Jesus said to them. So I can only imagine, I can only use my imagination to sort of fill in the blanks of what that conversation looked like. Jesus, uh, do you want us to kill them with fire? And Jesus turns around and is like, what? No, why would you ask me that? Name one time I have ever told you to do anything like that. No, do not call down fire. What is the matter with you? Um, A bit earlier in Luke chapter 9, and remembering that James and John are, are, are in the inner circle of Jesus. There are basically three guys in this inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They're the closest ones. And so earlier in that chapter, in Luke chapter 9, they witness the transfiguration. So they go up on a mountain with Jesus, and they see him in a cloud of glory. Okay, so there's this fog that comes up, this fog of holy glory, and they see Jesus real shiny. And then, all of a sudden, with Jesus are Moses and Elijah. And so Peter, James, and John are witnessing this. These are the heroes of the Old Testament faith, uh, uh, Moses and Elijah. And so now they see these guys, they know who they are, 
And now they're with Jesus and the three of them are just having a chat. Okay, this is, this is a moment that there are no words for. They, they would have had absolutely no words to describe that. And, and then if that's not enough, they hear the audible booming voice of God speaking from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. Okay, incredible, powerful moment. It should be a moment that would cause you to just fall down on your face and worship Jesus. Um, They should be, as anyone would be, incredibly humbled by this. But do you know what we find only 10 verses later? 10 verses after that, after that incredible moment, Luke 9.46 says this, An argument arose among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. (laughs) that is the dumbest thing I could possibly read 10 verses later. After seeing Jesus in the fullness of glory, hanging out with Moses and Elijah, hearing the audible booming voice of God, and then they start arguing, so which one of us is the best? I think I'm the best. No, I'm the best. That's amazing to me. Uh, A few days prior to this event, um, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, these sons of thunder, um, are having a similar debate. And not only do they begin this debate among themselves, they up the ante and they bring this directly to Jesus. Uh, In Mark 10, they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, before we... Before we get to the request that they make after this, let's just stop here and acknowledge that this is one of the most boneheaded things you could say to the God of the universe, okay? Especially one that you have seen in the fullness of glory. To just approach him like that and go, hey, listen, um, we want you to just do whatever we say. Dumb, right? But also, let's pause and put a mirror in front of ourselves and acknowledge How often we do that too. God, give me whatever I want. It's dumb when we read it. It's even dumber when we live it. So, um, they ask this question. They are standing in front of the powerful son of God who they've seen in the fullness of glory. And uh, they say, all right, give us whatever we want. Now, Jesus, in his infinite grace, doesn't rebuke them in the moment he begins to humor them a little bit. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? So they say, when you sit in glory on your throne, have one of us sitting on either side of you, one on your right, one on your left. Talk about jockeying for position. My goodness. These guys have seen Jesus as their ticket to the top. They're like, okay, this is going to be the king of the universe and we're going to be his two generals. We are going to be the big show. But then Jesus responds to them essentially by saying, look, guys, you have no idea what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you prepared to suffer the way that I will suffer? And in their naivete in that moment, they go, Yeah, we are. Turns out that James would be the first disciple martyred. John ends up being the only one of the 12 that isn't martyred. 
He lives a long life, but an incredibly painful one. Uh, Tradition tells us that at one point, the Roman Empire tried to kill him by boiling him in oil. Oddly, he survives being boiled in oil. So what do you do with a guy that you've tried to kill by burning him in oil? You throw him on an island in exile, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation. We got to get rid of this guy. Just ship him off to an island where he won't be seen. The point is, these guys are not short on personality, nor are they short on ego. Um, In fact, John records to me one of the funniest verses in the entire Bible. And one of the things that I love about the Bible, one of the things that I think we should appreciate about the Word, is that recorded in the Word, we have the real personalities of these authors. Okay, yes, it is inspired by God. Yes, it is carried by the Spirit. But also, we see what these people were actually like. We see their idiosyncrasies. We see their personalities. And we see, sometimes, things like this. In the book of, God, uh, uh, of John, the Gospel of John, uh, one of the things that he does, just as one of his idiosyncrasies, is he refers to himself in the third person. Um, I don't know if you know anyone who does that. Normally, when you know someone who speaks, to them, speaks about themselves in the third person, it makes you think, boy, that's a big-headed person. They refer to themselves in the third person. Well, John does that over and over in his gospel. So, in John chapter 20, Jesus has now risen from the dead. Okay? The tomb is empty. The women have just gone and seen the risen Jesus, and they've come back to tell the disciples about what they've just experienced. So Peter and John hear this, and they take, take off running towards the tomb because they have to see it for themselves. So here's John's account of what that scene looked like. John chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that would be John, the other disciple, speaking of himself in the third person. Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> okay, let's not miss that, all right? This is, this is just sliding something in there for everyone on earth to read for the rest of history. And in case you didn't catch it there, he repeats again in verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. (laughs) So he is writing about the single most incredible event in all of human history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most amazing moment in all of human history. And in that moment, he says, this is a perfect opportunity to flex. Twice. In a matter of verses, he says, yeah, Peter and I were running, but I was faster. I got there first. Peter, I kind of left him in my dust. I, I can only wonder what was going through Peter's mind when he read John's gospel. As Peter read and was like, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. There too, unbelievable. And you didn't even beat me, all right? I was right there with you. So this is how John was. This is what he was like. If nothing else, this sends the message that uh, his personality is huge and that is not hidden. Um, Additionally, uh, (laughs) along these same lines, no less than six times in his gospel, he refers to himself as 
the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, That is first century Greek for Jesus' favorite. (laughs) So he refers to himself over and over as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I was the one that Jesus loved. I'm his favorite. What a guy, right? Son of thunder, fastest runner, Jesus' favorite. But his time with Jesus, and this is something that we see uh, as we read throughout the scriptures, his time with Jesus changed him. His time with Christ remarkably softened him. So much so that later on in his life, he gained a new nickname for himself. Church tradition tells us that John was referred to as the apostle of love. So here at the beginning of his life, he is a brash, wrestling, tag team duo, fast runner, full of ego, to later on, after suffering the way that Jesus told him he would, he's referred to as the apostle of love. In 1 John, this book that we're going to be going through, he uses the word love over 40 times in just a few chapters. On the night that Jesus was betrayed in the upper room, uh, it says that John was there with Jesus with his head on his chest. So truly, he was one of Jesus' closest friends. According to a number of scholars, a a very good case can be made that John actually was Jesus' best friend. So quite possibly, we are talking here about Jesus' BFF, okay? The best friend of Christ. In fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, one of the powerful scenes there is that he looks down from the cross and he has to make sure that his mother Mary is being taken care of because uh, his stepdad Joseph is likely dead at this point and Mary is a widow and so he looks down from the cross and he says to John, John here is your mother, Mary here is your son. So he makes sure that John is the one to take care of his mom. Of the 12 disciples again Only John was not martyred. And he lived a long, fruitful life and became one of the pillars of the early church, um, writing five books of the New Testament. So it is through this man, who is full of fire, yet full of love, having been closer to Jesus than anyone, that we receive the letter of 1 John. It's interesting to note that John is very similar in the way that he writes. John begins this letter in 1 John almost exactly the way that he began the Gospel of John. The first couple of verses are are almost the exact same. So looking here at 1 John verses 1 through 2, that which was from the beginning, uh, and this section is called the Word of Life, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of Life, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Looking at uh, the Gospel of John um, in the first few verses, it reads this way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So there's remarkable similarity between the ways that he writes these letters. And what does that tell us? What it tells us is that John is chiefly concerned with us knowing 
the word, Jesus, the logos, knowing his eternality and yet knowing how close he is to us. Remember, again, Jesus, best friend. So the perspective here that he has is incredibly unique. He talks about the eternal, all-powerful, timeless, ageless, limitless Jesus who is so near to me that I have my head on his chest. And we'll talk more about that uh, as we go on. In terms of when this book was written, likely this is written somewhere between 85 and 95 AD. So this is later in uh, his life and more than likely uh, a a long time after he wrote the Gospel of John. Um, So he's writing this to churches that he is leading to make sure that they stay as close to the truth as they possibly can, as they're dealing with outside threats from persecution from the Jews and from the Roman Empire, and as they're dealing with inside threats that are coming from these false teachers. In terms of what the whole uh, book is about, and and again, I encourage you to go onto our Facebook page and check out the the Bible Project video that I posted, because it does an awesome job of giving us a visual of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, But part of the background is that he is uh, competing against um, a heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is, uh, uh, was popular in the first few centuries. And what we'll see as we go on through this series, we'll talk more about Gnosticism and what that was and what they believed. But among the things that they believed, they believed that all matter, anything physical, is evil. And what is good is what is spiritual. And so they have this duality between the evil physical and the good uh, spiritual. The spirit is holy. And the only way to be free from the physical limitations is through secret knowledge. Um, And so we'll talk about uh, why that's important as we go on. Um, In that Bible Project video, they, they pointed out that nothing that John writes here is new. In fact, uh, you can look at Jesus' teaching that John recorded in chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John, and, and you'll find that everything that he says is basically restating that, uh, what, what Jesus taught him. And so it's not so much a letter as it is a poetic sermon. So with those things there, let's, let's take from this chapter a couple of practical thoughts that we can begin with, that will serve as the foundation for this series. So if you're taking notes, point number one. Uh, And do not be concerned that point number one is in minute 38 of this sermon. Okay? (laughs) Point number one, the gospel is based in reality. The gospel is based in reality. Let's look at the first three verses of this letter once more. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, 
One of the things that's beautiful about the way that John writes is John bases his transmission of the gospel on first-hand experience. He uses the terms, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, what we have heard with our ears, what was made manifest to us, what was displayed right in front of us. It was there physically with us. We saw it with our eyes, we heard it with our ears, we touched it with our hands, we were there with it. John is being very careful to communicate to us that he is not giving us a second-hand or third-hand or fourth-hand account. John is not giving us something that has been passed down over dozens or hundreds of years or generations. He's not telling you what his cousin's friend's ex-girlfriend's nephew's neighbor might have heard through someone else. He is giving you a first-hand account. Some of the false teachers that were infiltrating the church at this time were giving a different message. And they were saying, well, the full story isn't really here. You see, the full story is X, Y, Z and all this secret stuff. And John shuts that down. He says, no, 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 no. I am going to tell you what we witnessed firsthand, what we saw, what we heard, that the God who came in the flesh actually was with us, told me directly as we walked together, as we ate together, as we sat at a campfire every night together. This was the guy that I hung out with every single day for three years of my life. I'm telling you what he said. So the message that I'm giving you is coming directly from God. There's no way around that. This is how he addresses the false teachers. He shuts them down by saying, my gospel came straight from God in the flesh. Not some secret, esoteric, hard to understand, out there in left field, where are we coming up with this kind of stuff? I'm telling you what the God in the flesh told me when we bunked together. My sleeping bag was right next to his and we looked up at the stars and he told me about the day that he made them. This is what I'm sharing with you. There are... So many people that will look at the Bible and they'll say, well, you know, the Bible and the books of the Bible almost certainly weren't written by the people whose names are attached to them. Um, and, and these are not firsthand accounts. You see, this was, this was an oral culture, right? So all of these things are being passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so many of the things are being forgotten or twisted or, or not quite remembered correctly. And so we can't really trust that what we have here is an accurate account of what the gospel truly is. That is flatly false. John is telling you right here, no, 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 I was there and I experienced it. This is not handed down. This is firsthand and now I'm giving it to you. Um, You might hear some people compare the transmission of the gospel and and the books of the Bible uh, compared to the telephone game. 
Um, this is a game that many of us played as children, probably, uh, or as adults. It's also fun to play now. Uh, in the telephone game, you sit in a circle, and you start with one person, and they have written down a sentence, a, a short message. And so then they whisper that into the ear of the person next to them. They can only say it once. And then that person whispers it into the next person's ear, and on and on and on. And so then when you get around to the, to the circle, when the circle closes, and the last person to hear it stands up and goes, oh, okay, so the original sentence was, and they say what has been whispered to them, and more often than not, it is absolutely nothing like what the first person started with. Because the more it passes down, the more it gets diluted or changed or heard just a little bit wrong, and you get something completely different. And so what you hear is people say, oh, that's how the, that's how the Bible is. It was just passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down. And what we have here is the end of the telephone game. But that's not what John claims. And by the way, no reliable biblical scholar, even liberal ones, dispute who the author of this letter is. It is widely agreed upon by good scholarship that John is the author of this letter between the years of AD 85 to 95. And what he says, I was there. I saw it. I'm the only one of the 12 that's still alive. So you can trust me because I was there. I witnessed it with my own two eyes. I touched it with my own two hands. Part of walking in the light is having the confidence in the testimony that we've been given. Knowing that we can stake our entire life on this. Knowing that we can stake our eternity on something that is trustworthy. That what we have is worth trusting. We don't have to be afraid of what is there. Next, look at what he says in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Point number two. Light walkers are light sharers. Light walkers are light sharers. He says he's writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And again, we know that he is chiefly concerned with people knowing the word of life, Jesus, following his commands, loving God and loving each other. By saying that I'm writing this so that our joy may be complete, We know that the flip side of that statement is that his joy will not be complete unless he writes this. He says, if I I don't write this, then my joy wouldn't be complete. With what he has experienced, there is no way that he can keep it to himself. He can't not tell people about it. He cannot live a life of joy if evangelism isn't part of it. If he's not telling people what he experienced, if, if he's not sharing what he saw with his eyes and what he heard with his ears, what he touched with his hands, what was made manifest to him, he's not going to feel like he is living a joyful, complete life. These days, we live in what claims to be, anyway, a very tolerant society. And the, the idea of tolerance is shouted from the rooftops. And... It's not that everyone is right. 
Uh, it's not necessarily the claim that's made that every single person is correct in their beliefs, though some people say that. But it's more that everyone has a right to be right. Everyone has the freedom to be right. And so, sometimes, we are afraid of speaking gospel truth because it might offend. Because the gospel claims to be the only truth. John records Jesus' words in saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That is one of the most exclusivistic statements in all of human history. And John was the one who recorded that. John means to tell to us, do not be afraid to speak the truth, even in a society that is against it. And by the way, the society that he was in, very against it, okay? In that time in history, uh, the Roman Empire were syncretists. That means that every religion was added to the pile. If, if another person came in with another religion, the Romans would say, oh, cool, add your religion to ours. And they would just collect dozens and dozens of idols. And so the average person is, is picking and choosing uh, Ben and Jerry's flavors of religions and saying, well, I got a piece of this and I got a piece of this and a, a piece of this. And so every religion was welcome except one, Christianity. And the reason why that religion was not welcomed is because it was saying, uh, we're not going to be added to the pile. Jesus has no interest in being a part of the pile. Jesus said, I'm the only one. In another passage in the book of Acts in chapter 17, the apostle Paul is speaking in the Areopagus, one of the centers of thought in the ancient world. And he says to them, I- I've been around your city in Athens And I've seen that you have all these idols. I I see that you're very devout. So devout that you even have an idol that's, that's labeled to the unknown God. Because they were saying, look, just in case there's another one out there that we don't know about, we don't know their name, we're gonna, we're gonna make an idol that says to the unknown God and we're gonna make offerings to it. Just so if we've missed one, that God won't be mad at us. And Paul goes in there and he says, uh, I'm gonna tell you about the unknown God. I know who that unknown God is. And I will proclaim the truth to you that he is the one God through whom everything was made and that he cannot live in a temple made with human hands, that he has directed all of history, its times, its places, its people, so that we might find him. This is what John is telling to us. Even if we live in a society that's completely against it, We have to be confident in the truth of it so that we can uh, shamelessly live it out. Even if it makes you look foolish. Um, A a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with uh, some coworkers. I I work at the pool on campus, and so I was sitting out on the pool deck with a couple of the lifeguards, and uh, they were talking about one of their religion classes at Notre Dame, and a professor that was teaching, and um, they're, they're talking about this class and kind of chuckling to themselves, and, uh, and, and one of them says, you know, it's so funny to me, this person, they're one of those people that takes the Bible literally, and, and really believes everything that it says, and, uh, you know, they actually think that stuff like the story of Noah could be true. They're like these, like, literal fundamentalists, and they're kind of chuckling, and I'm sitting right there, okay, I'm sitting with them, and 
it's not a secret to any of them what I do. I'm a pastor of a church. I make that very clear. It's almost like they forgot that I was there as they're laughing among themselves about this moron who believes that the Bible is really true. And so I'm sitting there like, okay, what to say? What to say? What do I say here? Conversation goes on and at one point, very gently, I said, you know, here's the thing. Um, one of the things that I appreciate about this place is that there, there's so many diverse opinions and we have the opportunity to, to dialogue respectfully about that. And they were like, yeah, absolutely, we agree with that. I said, you know, there's, there's, there's something to be said about even if you don't agree with someone, being able to have a respectful conversation about it. And they're like, absolutely, yeah, we agree. I said, so, you know, if, if someone comes and says, well, I believe this and you don't think that it's true, I, I love that there's respect. And they're like, yeah, 100%, we believe that. And I, I go, I'm one of those people that takes the Bible literally. <laughs> I'm one of those people that says, um, yeah, I, I think what Noah, the, the, the Noah story is actually true. I, I'm one of those people that looks at the Bible and, and, and believes everything that it says. And you could, <laughs> there was like this look on their face where they're like, oh crap, we're stuck. Um, I said, but I, I approach that position not because it's a blind shot in the dark. I approach that position because I think there's real historical evidence and, and real reasons to believe that that's true. And, and I started to just break down a, a few things for them. And they were like, huh, that's really interesting. Okay then. And, and I ended this conversation by saying, you know, one of my hopes is that I can be a person of faith without giving the impression that I shut my brain off. Without giving the impression that only an idiot would believe this. And they were like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We don't think you're an idiot at all. And one of them was like, you're one of the smartest people that I think I've ever met. And I'm like, I appreciate that. But this is one of the things that I believe. And they were like, well, maybe I need to examine this further. So the thing is, that the reason why I share this is that we need to be people who are willing to have a conversation like that. And part of what that is going to require is having real relationships with people that are outside of our faith. Real friendships with people. If we are treating people with love, if we're treating people with respect, if we are building a bridge uh, one of the things that my wife loves to say all the time, build a bridge that's strong enough to carry a message across. If you are relationally building bridges with people, there are going to be opportunities for you to carry the gospel across that bridge. And when I was sitting here with these two girls as they were starting a conversation with Christians who believe in the Bible are morons, right? But then they realized that someone that they had a relationship with that's treated them with love and respect believes this too. Someone that they trust, it makes them go, oh, well, maybe I should reevaluate some things. The thing about this that John says is that we cannot be walking in the light unless we're also sharing the light. If our joy can ever be complete without inviting other people into it, that is not joy. That's just selfishly hoarding what God has given us. Going back to that story about Anna Mae Penica, this woman born blind. Like Anna Mae Penica, these people walking in darkness have no idea what they're missing. 
They have no idea what sight is like, what colors are like in a spiritual sense. And they also don't know that the technology is there. (laughs) They also don't know that this miracle is available to them too. But they have to have someone bring that to them. They have to have someone make make them aware that that is possible. And so John says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That you might know the one in whom you have faith. My prayer is that as we go through this book of 1 John, we will learn what it looks like to be those who walk in the light rather than walking in darkness. Um, Again, I invite you to on your own begin a deep dive. Now that we've started this, you in your own quiet time, go home, read through 1 John. Um, Read through it every day. Read a chapter every day over and over and over. The more you read it, the more sinks in. Begin to look at resources and commentaries and And hopefully we're going to mine a lot of truth out of this together. Let me close this in prayer. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for this journey that we're about to take together through the book of 1 John. Lord, I pray that as we take this journey, you'll teach us how to be light walkers. People who are walking in the light rather than in darkness. God, I pray that if there are ways that any of us are... hiding darkness, harboring darkness in various places, that you will convict us of our need to bring those things into the light. God, I pray that you would rescue us from ourselves. God, I pray that you would show us that you can use anybody, even somebody like John. God, I pray that as we sing our closing song, that that our hearts would respond to what you have shown to us today in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will uh, sing our closing song.